You are now listening to The Big Trade with Peter Pham, enlightening conversations for maximum market returns. Dr. Shelley, why don't you introduce yourself to the audience and some projects you're working on? I'm Louise Shelley. I'm the Hearst Chair, which is the Chair for Public Intellectual at the School of Government of Policy, Government and International Affairs at George Mason University. And I started and run a, re- a small research center called TRAC, Terrorism, Transnational Crime and Corruption Center. And our primary project at the present time is working, trying to combat illicit wildlife trade. But that's not a standalone problem. It converges with many other forms of illicit trade and links many parts of the world. And I'm also finalizing a project now on illicit trade in nuclear materials. And I'm starting to write a book on the illicit trade and how it differs in the real and the virtual world, and how um, it undermines sustainability of the planet. We're having a, two sessions in the next few weeks, one of them on organized crime and what it's doing to destabilize Africa, and organized crime in conflict regions and how humanitarian missions need to deal with this problem. So that's our main activities at the present time. When you say real and virtual world, you're referring to like internet and transactions that are happening across the internet as well. Because I just had a guest recently named Shane Harris. He discussed about the growing conflict between cyber warfare with countries and and organizations. What, What parallels are we talking about here in terms of real and virtual? I'm not planning to talk as much on cyber warfare. Right. But the illicit trade that's going on. For example, you've had, remember when you used to be besieged with spam trying to sell you Viagra? Right. When when a team of researchers went in to study this spam, it turned out to be a Russian-based criminal network that was getting medicines, counterfeit medicines from China and India that it was shipping to the United States and working through through banks in Azerbaijan and, and Moldova. So it was an international operation. And how is that different from trade in the real world? And that's one of the things that I'm planning to be analyzing. Dr. Shelley, when you're discussing about trade, and I, I know you're a highly respected advisor to so many different organizations as well, being a participant in these markets, uh, being involved with banking to some extent and, and foreign transactions, I also see that one of my big concerns is how regulation is going to gradually intervene in the opportunities for market participants to take advantage of, say, for example, greater opportunities in, in smaller markets. So... How is it that regulators are going to be able to balance the concern of, I guess, money laundering, which plays a big factor for crime, corruption, and terrorism, and and basically participants in markets still looking for opportunities that exist? Because there's also the factor of major oligarchs that are have basically swallowed up 
uh, major financial institutions around the world. So for a smaller player looking for opportunities, you have to go to some of these smaller markets to, you know, take advantage of the, the regulatory environment that exists there. It's a very complicated question you're, you're asking about. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that there has been as much tightening up in the financial markets as one would think because big fish are still able to operate extremely well in in moving money in financial markets. About three years ago, I published a piece based on some research that I had done within the Global Agenda Council on Organized Crime of the World Economic Forum on Money Laundering into Real Estate. Mm-hmm. And and that was then picked up about a year ago by by a group of investigative journalists. And then this past week, there's been this major feature every day on the front page of the New York Times of these $20 million apartments that are being bought in New York by people with very questionable past. And and this money is not being bought with cash that's showing up at the realtors. This is money that's being moved through the international financial system. So I'm not sure that the financial system is that regulated that it is really catching a large amounts of money laundering. I think that for these big fish, there's still a lot of ways to be moving highly questionable money. What does that do, you know, for other individuals is, is a question that you are, you're posing. But it's not as if this market has so tightened up in, in the developed world that it's chasing all this capital off to the developing world to try and find havens in which to operate. Right. Because as you know, right now, the the fund that I'm managing has to address issues such as FINRA and FATCA. And now we're just trying to, you know, do best practice and just basically generate a hedge fund that generates significant outsized returns for investors, um, doing the proper KYC for clients. But I'm also often concerned about the implementation of capital controls and how they restrict an economy. But I also understand about some of the concerns about many of these questionable organizations. So it it's just like Entities like the internet, it, I can imagine it's such a difficult thing where part of having the markets and having these financial systems and transactions, it's, it's kind of like something that you have to manage. And, and I hope that there are not organizations and entities that are misusing your information and advice to just implement more um, capital controls for no apparent reasons besides maintaining an oligopoly. That's that's one of my one of my perspectives, at least. I don't think there are that many people that are that are listening to what I say. <laughs> really, I, I think that often I'm some voice off in the wilderness that is is having some impact lately since my new book, Dirty Entanglements: Corruption, Crime, and Terrorism, in defining what are the crimes in illicit trade that support this activity. Mm-hmm. But that's only because the UN has also in December passed this resolution that most people have not heard about called Resolution 2195, which was unanimously passed by the Security Council that expresses the concern about terrorism and how it's being supported by crime and illicit trade and addresses many of those areas. 
What do you think about Obama's involvement on the Security Council in addition to his role as a U.S. president? Is there any inherent conflicts that exist within that role? I'm not a, a specialist in the United Nations, but I would say that our role in this part of the United Nations on the Security Council and moving this combined terrorist crime agenda is not part of Obama's strategy at all. It's been pushed by many, many other countries, but not particularly us. But, but the, he, he plays a prominent role in it, doesn't he? He plays a role that I can't assess. I, I can't tell you. I have really not much insight on this. Okay. But he's not playing a role in this area of activity. There are many other countries that are much closer to the United Nations that are having much more impact on on the links between terrorism and illicit business than we are. Okay. Dr. Shelley, you also discuss a lot about um, the impacts of economic inequality and demographic inequalities. Can you give some insight and perspective on, on these thoughts and ideas that you have? Well, I think the last few weeks have just shown some very strong illustrations from Europe and it's also something that we can certainly see with the, the rising power and attraction of ISIS. So in my, in my work, this latest work, Dirty Entanglements, that was published by Cambridge in, in summer 2014, I talk about the marginalized youth, not just in North Africa and the developing world, but also in Europe and how they become likely recruits for both transnational crime and terrorism. And this, and in, in January, we had the attacks in, in France that were mm-hmm. performed by marginalized youth, some of them involved in petty crime, one of them who'd been in prison. Then a few days ago were the attacks in Denmark, same thing, marginalized youth who was part of a gang who had just come out of prison. So these problems are not just those of, of the youth where there's no hope for employment, for youth without a future, as I talk about in North Africa, in, in parts of the Middle East, in Pakistan, Afghanistan, where individuals are attracted to radical organizations or in Latin America, Central America, to crime organizations because there's no legitimate employment. It's a problem that one's finding globally. And in terms of ISIS and, and terrorism, um, I'd love to understand how these kind of organizations, number one, are able to fund and operate, how they're able to entice these underprivileged youths, and how they're able to continue to be a threat, or if they're really a threat compared to, you know, other businesses based on their financial capabilities? Well, you're asking many questions at once. Mm-hmm. So let's, let's try and simplify this. Of where did ISIS get the resources that it has? And then how does it recruit? Because if you're thinking about ISIS operating as a business, then it has to raise capital to acquire weapons to pay personnel. It has to recruit globally as a international business does today. It has to seek opportunities. It has to get market advantage. It has to seek, uh, has product diversity. Yes. That's, that's what we're looking at. And that's how ISIS operates. 
originally the predecessors of ISIS received substantial contributions from fundamentalist Muslims in the Gulf region. But as it progressed, it took great pride or has expressed great pride in its financial independence. But that financial independence has been achieved through criminal activity, an enormous diversity of criminal activity. So much has been made of their oil revenues, but oil revenues only represent about 50% of ISIS's budget, while for the rest of Iraq, um, oil represents about 85% of their budget. So they're not as much dominated by the resource curse, and they've engaged in kidnapping, extortion, taxation of citizens under their control, illicit trade in cigarettes. They're now controlling the captagon trade that is going from production in Syria into the Gulf states. They sell passports, fraudulent documents. It's a very broad area of activity. But they also have a very sophisticated media presence, which is how they recruit individuals. Can we go into some examples of that, the media presence? I mean, they are in online engagement. So in Central Asia, where they're recruiting, this is not so much done online. It's done there more through personal networks. But in Europe, they are very actively engaged in trying to market among youth, youth who are disenfranchised, who are hostile to the society in which they're living. And they have been very successful in recruiting individuals from many regions of the world who then know how to market to their fellow citizens. Because ISIS is now a diversified multinational organization that is functioning in Syria and Iraq. And therefore, they they know how to target their advertising and their recruitment strategies. Now, let's talk about the capital and how this is able to develop. I can tell you personally, setting up an asset management company, finding a bank that is willing to open an account for financial service business is ever so difficult. Um, I can tell you that firsthand. I'd like to get an understanding on how they're able to set this up because so many different countries now have various different capital controls. You're thinking in terms of running a financial market. While much of what I've discussed about ISIS funding is based on trade. So yes, now that there are banks functioning in Mosul, which they control, which was one of the largest cities of Iraq, they have access to banks. But one of the major ways of moving money that was also done by al-Qaeda, is what is known as trade-based money laundering. So that you move one commodity and you get paid for it and you get paid in another commodity that you can sell. Like a basically barter, right? There's some capital involved in exchange for some goods or services. Yes, so that you can be bartering uh, oil and receiving other commodities. Right. And... And some of this is going on within the Gulf states in which there are less banking controls, less capital controls. And so you can move there, move the money as well. But you've got to think about this as, as outside the type of capitalist structures in which you're functioning to be selling in markets 
and thinking about trade that started in Mesopotamia and is still thriving in Mesopotamia, right. which is now modern-day Iraq. Although even for some commodity trading, there's still the involvement of trade finance services, right? Like there's, you know, upon delivery, there's certain guarantees that need to be made. Not, I'm assuming not all the buyers of these products and services are affiliated with these organizations as well. They're just, I guess, consumers of these products and services. So there needs to be still some kind of like documentation. How, how, what is the dynamics between the buyer and, and seller of these, these products and services? And how does, how do those transactions you think would typically look like, especially in regards to trade finance for a particular commodity? I have not seen the financial records of ISIS's business transactions. Their financial records for payment of personnel and other expenses have been confiscated. And one can look at those and see the very good record keeping that they've had of payments. But a lot of this, I believe, and it's not just my sense that believes them, there are specialists that I talk to in the region, that some of this goes on, on trust, just as there has been a Hawala system that has allowed for informal transfers of money that has gone on for centuries, if not millennia in the region, that is based on, on trust and movement. It is not necessarily all written down. And, and that's how they functioned in moving money since the time of the, you know, the Silk Road. In terms of the, the Silk Road, I'm assuming countries in Asia can be relatively big buyers of some of these commodities, uh, due to their less stringent environment in terms of sanctions. If that's the case, is, is there a concern in regards to some countries like China that's able to trade or maybe transact with these kind of, um, organizations? I'm not sure that you're necessarily seeing China directly interacting with ISIS. Okay. Because say, for example, the oil is moved into Kurdish Iraq. It's moved into Turkey and then it goes and gets mixed with other channels and other producers. Right. So the source of this material is not clear. It's obscured by the facilitators, the, the corrupt individuals who are facilitating this in neighboring countries. So it doesn't come out that this oil is a a product of an ISIS oil field. Because I've I think I mentioned to you earlier offline was that what I've seen is there are ways in which, like you said, they you, for example, some of this oil could go to a destination like Dubai, and what could eventually happen is it could go to a major trading hub in Asia and then disperse throughout the region, um, which has less sanctions. So despite you know, despite being ambiguous in where the origin source of the oil came from, it's also going to an area where there's less regulation. So you, perhaps you're correct. There's, it's a little bit more ambiguous on who's actually the buyers of these products, but, um, the, the source and the supply and the intention of where the, the capital is going to be used is, I guess, the key thing that needs to be of concern. Exactly. In terms of 
so how is this organization able to function? Because it's if it is a multinational company, then I guess there would be chairmen, CEOs, people overseeing, and and managers are overseeing. It's it's hard enough running a company uh, publicly or even privately, but following and abiding all laws. How does one manage to run an organization? I guess in the shadows. I mean this these. What is ISIS is not just an organization made up of, of terrorists and insurgents. It was formed and grew in the prisons of Iraq during the occupation, in which the, the Ba'athists of the Saddam Hussein government, so the senior administrators who ran an economy, formed an allegiance with the insurgents, jihadi terrorists that they were imprisoned with. And these were actually, you know, what I would say, schools for terrorism. As one had talked about prisons as schools for crime, this is prisons as schools for terrorism. Seventeen of the leading uh, officials of ISIS were incarcerated, and they were trained. The Ba'athists trained the, the insurgents, and there was a, a sharing of information and insights. It's like a mentoring program. And you, you mentioned earlier is that their revenues, ISIS overall, could be upwards of $2 billion per annum? The estimate from the oil fields alone before the bombings was about a million. Now, they didn't reach that target until this past summer. And a million so I, per month or? Per day. Per day, okay. That per day because they were... If you calculate the number of oil fields that they were controlling, how many barrels that were generated a day, the price that they were discounting the oil to sell it on illicit markets, it comes out to be about a million dollars a day. Some people have higher estimates, but that's the bottom of it. Now, with some of the bombing, that figure needs to be reduced. But when I said this was a million a day, remember, this is it was estimated that this was about 50% of their revenue sources. But now... I'm hearing from colleagues in the Middle East about the booming drug business that's going on only within the Middle East. So there's, there's much less chance of disrupting this than, than elsewhere. So I don't know what their total revenues are because the people who've been doing this revenue analysis have not been figuring in these amounts at all. So you think that there's probably, in addition just to the oil revenues, that there must be other sources of revenues and that would make up more than half, correct? Well, the calculation when this was being done by by specialists in this field was that oil was about 50% and then there was another 50%. Now you can hear estimates that the, that the revenues of ISIS are way down because of the, the bombing campaign. Right, but the right. same people who are saying that are not on the ground looking at other sources of what's going on, such as I'm hearing from colleagues who are, who are not Americans who are operating in the Middle East and seeing other things. So we're not getting a very full picture of what is going on at the moment. Based on the, these assumptions on the revenue, does, does this make ISIS a formable entity wor- worthy of, I guess, global headlines on a daily basis, in your opinion? Or is this more of kind of like outliers where you're just finding like news that 
is it is a little unique and just highlighting and pinpointing this entity as a threat. I know you told me about or you previously have discussed about their territorial control as well. What what would ISIS look like if I was to examine this as a as a company? Like what are their assets? What do you think are their liabilities? I mean their assets are control of territory so that they have a safe base to operate from. And they control about a third of Iraq and they control a good chunk of Syria and they have oil revenues. They have a multinational workforce at the moment, Mm -hmm. which is both a strength and a liability because they can help recruit. They can help communicate internationally, but there may be some resentment from the local population that these foreign fighters are treated better. Mm -hmm. And... Are these um, fighters on under some kind of salary or retainer, you think? Oh, they're under salary. That's okay. part of burn costs of what is um, what is eating up the money from the oil revenues and others. There's a there are costs for ISIS. And um, so that's one of their advantages. And so they they control more territory than any other terrorist group before them. Okay. In a And they have more revenue. But I don't think that this is a unique situation for the future. And they've also managed to uh, spread some of their influence, such as we've seen in Libya. But there are other parts of the world that we're not looking at that also have potential for the future to function in this way. And we're not looking enough, as I've written in my book, on the rise of megacities like Karachi, which has very powerful crime terror groups operating within the city that controls over a quarter of Pakistan's economy. There are other things we need to be looking at as problems for the future and not just focusing on ISIS and thinking that we can bomb it and get rid of this problem. Now, what are some of their costs of, I know you, we already discussed about like, uh, I guess various different people working within the organizations. What, what are their costs you think that they have in, in terms of Valerie? their? They're paying for families of fighters that have died. And they're also providing some services within the territory that they're occupying, which cost money. Right. When you refer, by the way, to the control of these uh, lands, is that direct outright ownership or is it just kind of like a occupational situation currently? Well, you can't exactly say that I- ISIS is occupying this territory. They moved in, mm-hmm. and the population didn't oppose them. Some of them welcomed them. So that's okay. not exactly okay. an occupier in some cases. They have become the force of governance in much of in Sunni Iraq. And how would be this be different relative to al-Qaeda? And where is al-Qaeda right now? I mean, al-Qaeda has a network. Mm-hmm. So what we're we're looking at is Al-Qaeda of the Arab Peninsula, Al-Qaeda of the Maghreb, Al-Qaeda of Iraq is now morphed into ISIS. So what we had is an original Al-Qaeda. Some of it is in Pakistan now, in Karachi, um, some of the Taliban. But it's the old organization of Al-Qaeda Central is not really a force. There are important differences in that Al-Qaeda was much more dependent on on contributions mm-hmm. rather than generating its own capital from illicit activity, okay. control of territory. 
And its okay. rhetoric is also very different. That ISIS uses this idea of having a caliphate as a source of recruitment. And that's very, very effective for its labor force. So we're going to run out of time here, but um, I guess I'll, I'll close it off by asking one more question is that I, I mentioned earlier is about some of the concern that the media tends to potentially, in your opinion, do you think that the media also plays a big role in terms of fear mongering to some extent for some of these organizations? Or do you think that these are legitimate concerns and threats that are worthy of our daily attention and focus? I think it's a combination. I think there's some media that is sensationalizing the issue, Mm -hmm. and there's some of it that's doing very accurate reporting. And what's so interesting to me is that I've been, for a piece that I'm now writing, looking back over the media for the last decade, and if one read it, one should never have been surprised that ISIS arrived, just like I predicted it in my book. So, you know, the shock that people were so unprepared for this has generated so much media attention that they've been able to control territory and that they are so effective in communicating their brutality. Boko Haram may be more brutal, but it's less media savvy, and so people are not thinking about it as much. And what do you think are the countermeasures to address organizations like this? I think it needs to be a multifaceted strategy. One needs to get after the recruitment and stem the recruitment to the organization and what is attracting people to it, especially young people. One needs to deal with this corruption that's such a a galvanizing force for radicalization. One needs to go after and cut off the money flows to these uh, terrorist and, and transnational crime groups. And the military is just one piece of it, and it is becoming the predominant piece which is going to lead to destruction of of territory and individuals without ways to legitimately support themselves. So we may get rid of ISIS to be replaced by bands of roving militias. Well, thank you, Dr. Shelley, for your time. It was great discussing with you about this. Perhaps sometime in the near future, we can follow up and and hear how these organizations have uh, developed or have um, been contained to some extent. Let's hope so. Thanks. We hope you enjoyed this mastermind session. If you'd like to contact Peter Pham or Phoenix Capital, please email info at phx-cap.com. 